Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I am grateful for you listening to the 80th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. We're going to be worth your time again this week, uh, this time with a lot of questions about the Chiefs, um, as is usually the case, uh, including some stuff, a couple follow-ups on uh, the conversation we had last week with Eric Berry. And uh, the bonus section is also going to focus on the Chiefs and specifically Patrick Mahomes. But we're starting this week with college sports. And specifically with the border war finally coming back into our lives this weekend. Uh, long overdue. And look, I, I get that Mizzou's season so far is the kind of ugliness that nobody wants to see or can really get excited about. I get that. But I also understand that more students have been camping out for longer at Allen Fieldhouse for this game than any other in recent memory and if this was a generic game you know like same players and coaches and all that um but just wearing different uniforms like there wouldn't be a lot of interest here um you know like and and that's just being honest but both these teams were garbage and they were playing each other in these uniforms there would still be a ton of interest and passion you know what i mean like it just matters it just it just matters and that's just straight up honest and you might know that i hated the pause of the rivalry. Um, you might know I criticized, you know, KU generally and Bill Self specifically for that. It just, it always felt unnecessary and petty. And one of those things where honestly, where the intended message I thought was like pretty much the opposite of the actual message that came from the action. You know, I, I know the arguments. I know that Kansas fans had sort of like trained themselves to spew the company line that, you know, playing Mizzou didn't make sense in men's basketball or football, either one, because, you know, look, basketball is too good to play Mizzou and football is not good enough. Um, but that never made sense to me um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and and especially for basketball, because I can, I can actually understand, I can get behind that argument in football. I, I can understand where that is coming from. Like you only get three non-conference games and I can understand why a football coach would not want to spend one of them reminding his players and fans how far they are behind their biggest rival right um those three games they they have to serve a purpose Uh, so I I get that and I can actually understand it in football but not basketball like sports are supposed to be fun you know and and sports are business right I get that but they are business presented with the purpose of like attracting an audience and advertisers. And in that way, I just can't imagine arguing that KU fans would be more interested in this game if it was against like Mississippi State or whatever, or that Mizzou fans see this game the same way as if they were playing some other highly ranked team. It's just BS. You can't say that. And, you know, you can accuse me, <laughs> you can, you can accuse me of being biased on this subject in a few different ways. And, and I wouldn't be able to argue too hard with you. But this is among the most consequential, historical, meaningful rivalries in all of college sports, which is in itself, college sports itself is an entity that is at its best with rivalries, you know, and this thing started before the schools were in the same conference 
and you know that it took a break because some people had their feelings hurt and let their egos get in the way of seeing the broader and bigger picture will always just be a disappointment to me. Um, I, I love that the games are rotating between the campuses in Kansas City. I love that the football games will start again in a few years, though, you know, I suppose like <laughs> with how quickly college football structure is changing, it's hard to feel 100% confident that all four of those scheduled games will come off as planned. You know what I mean? But I guess I'll take what I can get. But I guess, look, college sports at their best get personal in a way that professional sports just struggle to achieve. You know, these are the places we went to school or our parents went to school and taught us to root for, or it's our wife's school or where our kids go, you know, we, and we feel part of that. And the gap between college and pro was probably closing all the time, but professional sports just at the core will always be just much more transactional in nature. It's just a different bond. It's a different setup. You know what I mean? So, you know, sports in Kansas city, um, you guys know, I've, probably lean optimistic more times than not. But like in a lot of ways, like sports in Kansas City, I would argue are as good as they've ever been. The Chiefs are rocking. Uh, the Royals have a lot of things, a lot of great things going on in, in the minors and with the ballpark exploration. Um, sporting, Kansas City obviously has had its postseason struggles, but that's a model organization in MLS. And you can see what Angie and Chris Long have done with the Kansas City current. Um, you know, and shameless plug here, there's a column. I, I just did a column on the longs, this is one year, almost exactly one year um, since they bought the team. And it's pretty wild, everything that they've been able to accomplish in that year. So look for that. It should be on the website by the time you hear this podcast. But anyway, back to the point of this, the, the college scene in Kansas City in a lot of ways, and I'm just being honest here, but college sports in Kansas City have taken a step back. They just have. And I don't mean a step back because, you know, of how bad KU football has been or the problems, you know, that Conzo Martin is having in year five or whatever. Um, because it just, it used to be that if you were a KU fan here, you hated Mizzou, right? But you also were interested in what they were doing because what they were doing was directly affecting your school. And the same was true in reverse. Um, I'd go a step further. There's a lot of Nebraska fans in Kansas city, sort of a similar deal there. Nebraska fans were invested in KU, invested in K-State, invested in Mizzou and the same way the other round, the, the other way around, right? Like those local schools, if you're a fan of one of those local schools here, you might want to know if Nebraska's quarterback is healthy or whatever. And now none of that matters. You know, everybody's separate. Um, and at least in terms of the Kansas City conversation, it's, it's like everybody is in their own silo, right? Their own echo chamber. And it's sort of isolated. And KU and K-State are obviously still in the same league. But that rivalry has been more like, you know, brothers than enemies. And it hasn't always been that competitive in basketball or football in quite a while. Right. And so I don't mean to just sit here and complain. Um, you know, you can't get in the way of progress and college sports progress is dictated by money. And I get all that. But I guess what I'm saying here is that like my favorite part of the border war coming back is that Kansas fans are sort of like forced into being invested in Mizzou. And Mizzou fans are forced into being invested in KU, even if it's just for two hours on one Saturday afternoon, non-conference game. You know, most of us assume this will be a blowout. Uh, I, I just I think that Kansas City sports, I think sports here in Kansas City, where I live, are better off for it. And and that makes me really happy. Um, OK, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, uh, here comes the spiel. Three ass. And, you know, we're still cool if you only do two or one or even zero, um, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, the first, uh, please help support us by giving the sports pass a try. Uh, dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. Uh, just reach out to me, um, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and, and I'll send you the link. 
Um, the second, please rate and review us. Um, we appreciate the love that you've given us already. I see you. I thank you. We see all the five-star ratings you've given us already, but I'm just saying, uh, if you haven't already done that, if you haven't already given us a rating review, uh, please do it. it. It really helps us get the word out. Um, third thing, um, if you want to participate in next week's show, and I hope you do, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365. Um, all right, guys, I appreciate you. Uh, quick break, and then we're back with the question. Hi, Sam. This is Ron Lockler calling from T-Spot in Germany. So uh want to thank you for, for everything that you do and appreciate that. And, and uh, it's great living over here, but, boy, I really miss the States and, like, sports and and, and your articles and everything, it kind of makes the world smaller and brings us all home. So I appreciate that. So what I want to call about is kind of two of the most surreal circumstances that I've experienced as a Chiefs fan in my 51 seasons as a fan. And it goes back to your article regarding uh, Eric Berry and your podcast last week, and where Eric talked about football and described it as art, and that you know, he had to present it in his own certain personal purposeful way. Um, and it made me start thinking back uh, to the 2018 season, which was the first real surreal circumstance, where everything from spring training all the way to the end of the year was day to day. And it was confusing. I mean, y'all talked about it every day. As fans, we talked about it all day. We ask Reed every day, every week, and it would be, you know, day to day. He's almost there. Um, and it never came until the end of the year. And when he did show up, it, you know, he was good, better than anybody else at safety, but not what he had been before. But he's never played football since. And it's kind of related that the idea that he's never come back is because he, you know, he's waiting for he can do it in the same purposeful, meaningful way that he does. So in his, in your talks with him, did Eric relate any of that kind of artistic thought and approach to how he plays his game to the 2018 season because it's still a mystery to all of us. And when you talk about Barry, you just got to think about 2018 and how everything went there and and all that. And so, you know, what's your thoughts and, and that kind of thing on that. And probably the second most surreal thing is as Eric Barry was day-to-day but never really showed up as we hoped and expected anticipated uh, until the end of the year and then was a bit different. Is the Chiefs' offense going to be the same way this year? I mean, is it going to be as elusive to us as Eric Berry was in 2018? Anyway, thanks for everything you do. Appreciate everything. Take care. Bye. Look, first, uh, sorry, guys, but if you call from a different continent, um, I'm probably going to use your question. Uh, that's just the role, the rules. Um, that's how this thing is going to go. But even if this call was coming from, you know, Lee Summit or whatever, it's an interesting thing to think about. And my strong sense is that that day-to-day thing, I know we've all made our jokes, but that day-to-day thing, like, let me put it this way. For any player to go from injured to playing, there's three people that have to be all on the same page. Doctor has to clear the players, coaches have to agree, and the player has to agree. And my strong sense is that the doctor and the coaches were on board. And basically, they're waiting for Eric to agree. For Eric to feel it. And I think that's why they kept using that phrase day to day, because literally Eric could have walked in one day and said, okay, today's the day, let's roll. 
And I want to be clear here. There's at least a little bit. I won't say a lot, but there's some reading between the lines here that I'm doing. And I'm not reporting this as fact, but you're asking me what I think and I'm trying to answer the question. And I'd even go one step more and say that Eric was probably right. I, I know the easy thing is to dump on him and make fun of, you know, the the my spirit line or whatever and say he wasn't there for his team, whatever. But and I think I mentioned this last week. Eric is a smart person. Uh, he went through some major injuries and rehabs, not to mention cancer. And I just think that there aren't many people in the world who are more in tune with their bodies and what's possible physically than a professional athlete with that kind of background. You know what I mean? So I think the doctors were operating honestly. You know, they, they ran the tests and did all the things and, you know, didn't see a reason he couldn't play. But that's a different thing than what a player feels and knows about his own body. And so my sense, and I want to be very clear here, like this is a higher level of reading between the lines than I was, than I was doing earlier. But so let's just say this is speculation from me right now. But I think it's logical to believe that Barry knew what his body was capable of at that point better than the doctors and earlier than the doctors. And I think that he could have been in a place where he thought he could help and knew that this was a special team, but also knew that he probably only had so many bullets in the chamber, so to speak. And so he wanted to be careful. And maybe that's why he waited until the end like he did. Um, So that's kind of my working theory, right? Uh, But really only Barry knows what he felt at the time. And I wish I could have pressed him a little bit more on that. Um, I know that stuff fans are interested in, but, you know, there's only so much time and and only so many topics that can be hit, even with, you know, how long we ended up on the phone. So, um, and then also you're asking me about the offense and, um, you know, I think this is a pretty wild thing here. And I'm going to keep this short because we got some more stuff on the offense coming, but I just think it's pretty crazy that like, (laughs) think about that, like nobody would be surprised if the offense proves to just simply be off for whatever reason the rest of the season, because, you know, that's what we've seen going on five or six weeks now. And I also don't think anyone would be surprised if the offense just started like bombing 30, 35 points every game again, because we've seen that for too long. So, you know, football is a weird game and, you know, the NFL lives for these situations, you know, the parody, but, you know, there really is no outcome on the Chiefs offense the rest of the season that I think should be a total shock at this point. Um, okay. So one more question that's, uh, sort of a, a follow-up to the Eric Berry interview from last week. Um, here's Lucas. Hey Sam, that's Lucas. I'm calling from Overrun Park. Uh, I was going because in your last podcast, you mentioned that Eric Berry, if he had been healthy, they would have won the Super Bowl against the Rams, which I probably agree with you. But I was wondering, I know it's kind of a speculation question. If they had won that Super Bowl, do you think they have the same kind of teardown with the defense and turn it into what happened and they end up winning back-to-back Super Bowls? Or do you think it turns into a completely different kind of season and are we in a completely different spot now? Thanks, Sam. Yeah, man, um, that is a really good question. And, um, you know, more than that, just a, a really good point. I I think it would have been different, um, a different offseason for sure. Um, you know, first, I, I find it hard to believe that Andy Reid, um, I mean, that man is as loyal as they get particularly to his coaches. Um, so I, I think it's unlikely that he would have fired Bob Sutton as defensive coordinator. I really do. And and if I'm right about that, then it's hard to know exactly how the personnel changes might have been different too, you know? So I, we're talking about Barry here. Um, I find it hard to believe that Barry would have been back in 2019 either way. I just think that relationship at some point had become a little bit strained. And I just think even if in our hypothetical that we're talking about here, even if he was able to play in the AFC championship and hypothetical Super Bowl, 
Um, you know, I, I just, I just don't think, and I get that he played in the AFC championship. I'm talking about played well, like was the Eric Berry that, that we became, you know, used to seeing. Right. And, and so if he was strong and played in that game in the Super Bowl, I just, I still don't think the chiefs could have been in a position to trust that he could have held up for an entire season, you know, and, and that spot of the defense is just too important to leave to chance like that, you know? So I'd, I'd be inclined to believe that the chiefs, uh, still would have pushed for Tyron Matthew that offseason. Um, I still think they would have drafted Juan Thornhill. Um, would they have felt the urgency to give up a first round pick and a huge contract to Frank Clark? I, I don't know. I'm less certain on that, you know, uh, or maybe if D Ford in our hypotheticals, does, does D Ford still jump off sides? Whatever. But, you know, maybe there's more of a runway for him to stay in Kansas City. Um, still think they would have, you know, looked to, you know, replace Reggie Ragland. Still think they would have walked away from, you know, Steven Nelson, Orlando Skandrick. Um, I'm less sure about Justin Houston, um, because this is easy to forget now, but he really did look like he was slowing down by then. So look, without just like blatantly speculating on something that nobody can ever know anyway, uh, I guess I'd just tell you that I believe that Sutton would have returned. And, and there would have been a lot of personnel changes on defense, but maybe not to the same level. What that would have meant for 2019, um, you know, who knows? Uh, but I love this stuff with sports. Like, this is the fun stuff, right? Like, the, the what ifs. Um, okay, um, here, here's a question. I know I've, I've heard versions of this question a lot, too, um, this next one. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to include it. Okay. Hey, Tom. This is Gary from McCordsville, Indiana. It seems like every week when I watch the Chiefs, they have an opening drive that's more focused on runs with a few passes mixed in, and they drive down for a score virtually every week. A lot of weeks, that's the only touchdown they score. Or they struggle the rest of the game as they seem to want to throw passes more and run less than they do on that first drive. I wonder if I'm the only one seeing this. Enjoy your podcast. So, you know, just watching the games, I think a lot of us feel at least some level of this, right? Especially recently. So I, I went back and looked. I think you'll be interested in this because I think this feeling comes mostly from recent games against the, the, the Broncos last week and the, before that, the, the Cowboys and Packers. Those are the games the Chiefs scored touchdowns early, um, looked real smooth in doing it, and then kind of struggled for the most part for the rest of the game. But listen to these numbers. Um, I know numbers don't always translate very well to radio or podcasts or anything, but um, here we go. Uh, the, the Chiefs called, in the Broncos game, the Chiefs called nine passes and four runs on that first possession. And and here, I, I should mention, I'm going by play calls, not the result, because, you know, there are a few times Mahomes scrambled on these opening drives, including the, the touchdown against Denver. So anyway, nine passes and four runs. And then the rest of the game, they were uh, uh, exactly dead even run pass. Uh, so they did not get away from the run against Denver. Um, against the Cowboys, opening drive. It was five passes and four runs. Rest of the game, it was 32 passes and 22 runs. Um, though full disclosure here, I, I'm not going back and like charting all the play calls, guys. Um, uh, so these numbers are the, the, the rest of the numbers are results. Um, against the Packers, opening drive, nine passes, seven runs. And then the rest of the game, 28 passes, 18 runs. So if you put it all together in those three games, uh, we're looking at a total of 23 passes and 15 runs on the opening drives and 80 passes and 60 runs the rest of the way. 23 and 15 opening drive, 80 and 60 the rest of the way. I just, that's not out of whack. You know what I mean? So um, 
And again, I didn't chart the individual play calls, so those numbers aren't going to be exact, but we're, we're in the ballpark here. And, and I think those numbers are, are vaguely in line. So I just, I, I don't think it's right to say that they get away from the run, but I do think it's natural and smart to wonder why the rest of the game isn't going as smoothly as that opening drive. Um, and that's something that we're going to talk a lot about, uh, here in this show and, and I'm sure going on, uh, into the future. So, okay. Uh, there's two more questions about the chief's offense here, and we're going to play them back to back because they're related to each other. And actually this one about the opening drive as well. So, um, okay, here goes. Hey, Sam, this is Chris from Indiana. And do you kind of believe like I do that, uh, Andy Reed is, you know, they're having the good. The scripted 15 looks really, really good, and then he's kind of purposely holding things back uh, the rest of the game, just letting the defense do what they are doing and winning the game and controlling the game. And when the time is right, like the offense is just going to unleash hell. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, there's Chris, and then here's Regan uh, kind of wondering about something similar. Hey, this is Regan from Gardner. And I was thinking about the Chiefs' offense and how everybody's kind of freaking out about it. And as we look back the last couple of years, it seems like they were never doing more than they needed to. So in 18 and 19, they were scoring a ton because we needed to and the defense wasn't doing anything. Um, And now as the defense is dominating – they don't need to score that much. Is it possible that Andy Reid gets tight or gets too conservative in his play calling once they have a lead that he just doesn't allow them to put it away? Whether the players play tighter because he does or whether the play calling changes, doesn't it just seem like we're always complaining that they don't put away their opponents? I'm wondering if that's more of a, an issue with our offense right now than Patrick Mahomes playing poorly or dropped passes. Anyway, just thought I'd ask. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so for me, I think some of this is wishful thinking. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't think Reed is holding back. Um, I don't think that's how he goes about it. I don't think that's how he's ever gone about it. Um, I, I do think there was a time that he was guilty of going a little bit conservative when they got leads. But I'm thinking about a long time. I'm thinking about like 2015, you know, 2016, um, you know, in, in some of those seasons. Uh, but I think those, those those days are dead. You know, for me, like the play calls still have the same number of deep shots. You know, if, if you watch not just where the ball goes, but where the receivers are going they're they're still the deep shots are there. Um, you know, they're just they're not open. So he's throwing the ball to, to other plays. So, um, you know, I don't think they are really going conservative. Um, you know, with a bunch of like halfback off tackle or inside zone or whatever. I just think the execution, um, you know, is going other places or in some places isn't there. Right. Um, you know, teams are sort of like narrowing the margin of error on the chiefs, you know, with these two deep safeties, you know, making the chiefs play the whole field, um, go up and down, you know, lots of snaps, making the bet that at some point a penalty, a bad throw, a drop, whatever is going to force a punt, um, or a turnover been a pretty good bet. Right. Um, you know, Mahomes like very clearly has not been as sharp as we're used to seeing. I think we can say that out loud and, and we have. Um, and I know there's questions about his mechanics and stuff like that, but I, to me, just, I think he just looks like a guy who's missed his timing and his rhythm, you know, a guy who's like always depended a lot on those things and, you know, uh, depended on seeing the field the same as his receivers 
And that's just not there right now for, for whatever reason. And, you know, the Chiefs made scoring points look so easy for so long that I think it became easy to forget that this stuff is hard and, and it's especially hard to do it at the highest level. And if one thing is off, a throw that hits a receiver like sort of in his catching radius, but just like 12 inches behind or whatever, like that can have this sort of domino effect that can eventually drag the whole thing down. And I know I'm not giving you specifics here. I get that. I'm sorry, but I'm not holding anything back. I don't want to make stuff up just guessing. And right now, my best theory is that this all starts with the quarterback. And until he gets where I think we all know he should be, where we've seen him, they're going to have some problems scoring points like we're used to seeing. So, okay, speaking of Mahomes, um, we're going to take one more quick break here, and then we're going to go back. Uh, we're going to go through a few things he said in his press conference this week that I thought were interesting. Um, all right, guys, uh, let's finish strong. And I just thought it was worth pointing out deliberately here something about Mahomes that kind of makes the whole thing work. Um, I know I've said stuff like this before, but the reason that he is worth the contract he's on, um, you know, and <laughs> besides uh, it likely being an undermarket contract uh, by three or four years from now, but he is worth that enormous investment because he is smart enough that he'd be a really good quarterback with average talent. And he is talented enough that he'd be a really good quarterback with average smarts. But then he also has this other element. And it's the way that he is with his teammates. And, and I think this is also an important part of the package. Um, because on, on the field is one thing, all right? Like, we, we can see that he is, you know, as Eric Bieniemy put it, a competitive prick. Like, that's what Mahomes is on the field. And I, I, I don't think he's ever thrown an incompletion, by the way. He has never thrown an incompletion to McCole Hardman without just immediately motioning with his hands that Hardman should have been in a different spot, right? You know, we saw the quick argument with the enemy on the sideline last week. We know he's really demanding. We know that he's locked in and he can be a prick sometimes. Um, but I also think it's worth noting how he is publicly and just endlessly and enormously supportive and, you know, always up for, you know, talking much more about his deficiencies than he is his successes. So like here he is answering a question um, this week, uh, He's answering a question about all the drop passes from his receivers. And it's a good question because it really has gotten ridiculous. But, um, okay, here's here's Patrick's answer. Yeah, I mean, those guys are always catching footballs. I mean, before, after practice, during practice. Um, but I think for me, as a quarterback, I got to throw the ball in better places. Uh, some of those drops are because the ball is not in the right placement. Uh, so if I can get the ball in a better place where it's more catchable, especially when they're in traffic, it'll, it'll probably cut down on those numbers. So it has as much to do with me as it does with uh, with them. And then here he came back to that same topic again. And, you know, this wasn't even an answer to a question about drops. Um, here he is. Some of the drop passes, people get hung up on. I mean, even the one in the game that got intercepted, if I throw the ball in a better spot, he, he makes the catch and probably splits and scores. Um, but I threw it high, hard, and it gets tipped up and picked. And it's, people kind of put it on him, but it's really on me to make a better throw. So, I mean, just uh, for myself, to try to make some better throws and let those guys have e easier catches, especially in traffic, where they can make plays happen after the catch. I mean, guys, keep in mind the Chiefs are getting slaughtered on these drops. It has been really bad. They're third in the league in drops, and Kelsey and Hill rank 1-2 in the league in EPA lost due to drops, which, you know, just in normal person terms is a sign that these aren't just drops that we remember, but these are drops when the game would have been really big or drops that would have been third down conversions um, or drops that turn into interceptions, that kind of thing. I mean, just cut out half of the interceptions that have bounced off his receivers' hands or bodies 
And I think his numbers would actually be getting at least some subtle MVP traction, um, especially as they've won five in a row. You know, maybe the Chiefs would have an extra win or two earlier in the season. And look, to, to be clear, like these throws are not perfect. Like no, nobody's arguing otherwise. Um, and if all we can do is control our own behavior, then he's right to concentrate on himself. But these are very catchable balls. And his receivers know that. And he does too. Uh, but I can promise you that they also appreciate him, you know, trying to take some of the blame. And he did something similar here uh, when asked about why the Chiefs aren't hitting as many big plays as we've gone used to seeing them do in recent years. Um, here's what he said about that. I mean, obviously defenses are playing uh, different types of defenses, so that, that has an effect on it. And then um, I, I've missed a good amount of them. I mean, you look over the season, there's been a couple, even the last game, the one over the middle to Tyreek. I mean, if I hit those throws uh, that I've hit in the past, then we'll have those explosive plays. And so uh, it, it's going to take me being better uh, hitting those throws when they're there because uh, the defenses are limited them. And uh, for uh, whenever we do have that shot, kind of like I said, I got to hit it. And uh, I haven't done that these last few weeks. So one more time, I think if you've gotten this far in the show and hopefully read some of what I've been writing about this team, you know that I believe that Mahomes is the biggest part, the single biggest part of holding the team back right now. That's just how good he is, right? And he is the thing that's keeping them at good instead of great. So there's some truth in here and some earned accountability, and that's all part of this too. But I just, I also think that he's the only guy in that room who can be pretty dang sure that he's going to be around in three years, you know, let alone 10. And so he's got some juice with everything he says and the example that he sets. And I know that's a big part of holding this team together through the struggles is him staying conscious about using that power wisely. You know what I mean? I just, I thought it was worth pointing that out here. So, um, I I know you guys know a lot of this. Uh, I just think in certain spots, it's worth emphasizing, you know, the subtle stuff that really does matter in in the broader scheme. So, um, all right, guys, uh, that's the show this week. Uh, Thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Uh, Big thanks to Monty Davis for putting this all together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for letting us be a small part of your lives. Um, Have a great weekend. Be kind.